Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, producer, documentary filmmaker from New York, currently living in Montreal, Matt Zimbel. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Mr. Zach Zimbel. Sir, thank you for joining us. <laughs> hey, Leander. Nice to be with you. Well, first, introduce yourself and then we get into it, please. Well, my name is Matt Zimbel, and I've been a member of uh, Manteca, which is a band that uh, I started uh, with the bassist Henry Heilig back in 1979 in Toronto, Canada. And it's a nine-piece band, um, and we've just released our 14th record, which is called The Offspring Project. And The Offspring Project is a, a record that we made with our uh, 11 of our children who have become professional musicians. I mean, you already answered one of the things I was going to ask you about. So was it one How of those... efficient is that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, is, was it one of those situations where they just happen to play the same instrument, or they all play the mixture and it just... No, what happened was um, we were looking to do, we wanted to do a project, right? We wanted to do something that was a, a little bit different because, you know, once you get to the point of like, we've done, we had done at that point 13 records, right? And and we felt like we wanted to do something different, but we didn't really know where to go. We definitely didn't want to cover anybody's tunes because writing is so much the exciting thing for us, right? So we didn't want to do, you know, Manteca does Led Zeppelin or Manteca does the Beatles or, you know, Manteca does Diana Krall, whatever. We didn't want to do any of that. So um, we were looking around for an idea and Colleen um, Allen, one of our sax players, said to us, look, I've been playing with some really amazing young people uh, and one of them was um, Virginia McDonald. And I went, well, what's she play? And she says, well, she plays clarinet and she just won this huge international prize for her clarinet playing. I was like, that's Kirk McDonald's daughter. So Kirk was our first saxophone player back in 1979. So I was like, oh, that's great. Well, why don't we think about doing a project? How many kids do we have that play instruments? And how many kids do we have that are professional musicians? And, and so we started going through the list and eventually we had like nine and then a couple of other people chimed in about other kids who had been born to Manteca members and who are no longer in the group. And so we ended up with uh, 11 of our children on the record um, playing various instruments, writing. Uh, it was just an incredible experience. And they wrote half the album. Yes, they wrote half the album. Absolutely. Yeah, I a big person for youth and jazz. So I'm actually was excited for that. Was it truly jazz, but I still liked it. <laughs> uh, no, it is not. Well, it depends on how you define jazz. Um, some of it is pop. No question about it uh, that the kids wrote. Some of it is fusion, which we don't normally do. Um, some of it is jazz, you know, so there of the six compositions that, uh, that the children wrote, I would say two are pop or R&B, uh, one is fusion, and three are jazz. What are the ages of the kids, roughly? From what range to? They tend to be in their uh, mid-30s, although the youngest was 22. 
Okay. Uh, antidotal, uh, antidotal evidence. Who wrote that one, though? Uh, Doug Wilde and myself wrote that one. Good. I would actually rearrange that one and make it more of a jazzy big band song. I like that one. So, oh yeah, you like that one? Okay, yeah. Because that—that's funny. That tune was in the in the lineup for a record for the last three records, and it never made it. (laughs) Why not? Uh, You know, it was one of those things where the demo was very machine driven, right? It was a very a lot of uh, samples, and so it was kind of a little bit hard to imagine our approach to it. Uh, and then we just started working on it and thought, you know what, we can make this work. And, and so we brought it into rehearsal and played around with it and it, and it really started to feel good. So that's okay. where we went. I'm actually, I'm not thinking else to really say about that one. Just the only other thing I would say is like, what type of drum set you use? Because some of them sounded really, really electronic. Oh no, it's all acoustic. It's... um. Our drummer is sponsored by Gretsch Drums, Charlie Cooley, and it's all uh, it's all acoustic drumming. There's no samples on the record. All the playing is uh, humans. That's the way we do it. We don't do samples. Okay. We don't do playing along with tracks. One of them sounded just really heavy to me. I didn't say I didn't like it. It's just that I was just like, mm. okay, no problem. No, 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 we don't... Uh, <laughs> We don't do that. I mean, there's three percussionists in the band, and we've all been victims of uh, <laughs> the, the declination of work as uh, time goes on and more and more samples become prevalent. I, we, yeah. You know, we all lost a lot of work because of that. We don't do that. So I fully understand that part. So I should say, I'm sorry. As a fellow <laughs> percussionist, I feel your You're pain. You're a percussionist, yeah. <laughs> I feel your pain, yeah. Remember that? We used to do demos. Remember that? <laughs> Dude, the whole recording industry changed. Oh, actually, That's yeah, right. go from there. From your first album in 79 to now, how has it changed? Just the whole process. Oh, man, that's such a great question because this record was so sad in so many ways for us. And I'll tell you why. Because it was the first record that we did that was digital only. Like, there's no physical property, right? There's no physical album. So emotionally, I kind of... I didn't feel like I was releasing a record, you know, it just kind of felt like, okay, it's out into the ether, whatever happens to it happens, you know, it just, I didn't get that box coming in from the printer of like, you know, the CDs or the albums or it was, um, it was uh, emotional. And then, you know, then you realize, well, what has changed? Well, first of all, the quality of the audio has been diminished because the streaming platforms squash stuff and compress stuff so much. Secondly, um, if you can find liner notes for a record, good luck. Who knows where they are? The record cover is now about the size of a postage stamp. And no one gives a shit what you do about uh, your sequence of the songs because no one's going to be listening to the full record. So people's um, attention span has gotten a lot shorter. And because of the platforms, um, you know, a work is not as tangible a work as it used to be when you started out. Now, I mean, that said, there are advantages, you know, like our record was done on Pro Tools, which is obviously uh, a much more effective and inexpensive way to record than using multi-track two-inch tape, which is extremely expensive. So there are definitely advantages to working in that uh, environment, but uh, in the contemporary environment. But if I had my choice, I would say, you know, I'd like to be back in the days of, oh, I don't know, 
2011, 2012, when you still released actual CDs and people bought CDs. And I met a, I met a, I was at the bank yesterday and <laughs> the teller was like, what do you do? And I told him and he said, oh, I've never bought a record. I was like, how old are you? He's 24. He says, I have never in my whole life purchased a record. I was like, wow, that's pretty incredible. Well, you know, a lot of, I do some youth work and they literally see music as free. Right, exactly. They don't understand the process, all that stuff. No. And I want to say in a way I'm jealous of them. But at the same time, yeah, it's going to kill us off. Yeah, it's I mean, just it's a matter just crazy. of time. <laughs> it, it's just crazy. I mean, like what we're doing is we're all pretending that things are going super well. You know what I mean? It's going great. It's going great. Yeah, huge. Yeah. yeah. No, because what's happening now with records is happening in other fields of culture, too. So there are so many festivals that are free. There are so many events that are free. People are becoming, oh, pay $60 for a ticket? I, why would I do that? I can't do that. And then parking and then babysitting and then, you know what I mean? So it gets to the point where people are looking at that going, I can't go out. I'm not going to go out. Right. And, and, you know, basically, if you say $60 for a ticket and then you take into account how much it costs to rent a theater, how much it costs to market a show, how much it costs to put a technical crew in place, how much it costs to um, have ushers and credit card charges and all those things. You go through your $60 in a ticket in no time. The artist is getting hardly anything. I mean, there's a reason why all my friends that do pop and stuff like that, they're always on the road because they That's can't right. rely on anything else. That's right. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenging uh, period that we're in right now um, because you see it on, on, you know, the whole digital ag algorithmic world is based on not paying creative people for their work. And that is a catastrophe. Okay, now, not trying to pick on you, sir. Is this you're older than me and been in the field longer than me? And we're talking about this. Where do you see this going? I don't feel picked on. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just see it going that... Um, well, that's a very profound question, and it's, it's very hard to come up with an answer to that question at this particular time because... Um, I don't know what's happening. Uh, I mean, you know, look at it this way. You pick up a newspaper these days, they're thin. You know, there's nothing in there, right? Uh, you're going to get me I out of it. I don't want to do I, that. I know. I mean, I don't subscribe. I, I don't, I I don't subscribe. all the jazz magazines on that. Exactly. <laughs> so, so it's happening on many different, like it's not just music. It's in publishing. It's in journalism. It's in... It's, you know, that's what the Hollywood strike was all about for the writers. And the, the actors still haven't signed. And here in Canada, uh, uh, our actors are locked out of the commercial agreements because the commercial producers don't want to pay uh, union rates. So you're dealing with uh, this kind of assault on uh, creators and creatives that uh, is being waged by the digital domains. And it's very, very aggressive. And it's not by accident. It's, 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 it's very intentional. What you end up having, I think, is you end up having, um, there's a hyper-rich class of artists, and then there's everybody else, and they're no longer in the middle class. 
they're down in the bottom because there's just no revenue flowing down there. But traditionally, that's always been the case. You had the top, top, top people, even if we go no, back but to- I think there was a I think there was a middle range. I think there was a level of performance and record sales that was not wealthy, but it was not impoverished either. Okay, but and I think, think that that, that means- level has gone away. Okay, so next generation, we're saying. So we're saying 10, 15 years from now. Will there right. still be artists on the top, top? Or do you still think they're not going to be selling out arenas anymore? Oh, there will still be artists on the top, top. Yeah, they, there will be. Um, but I mean, look, if you talk to people in the record business or if you read the record, you know, um, journals and stuff like that, you'll see how hard it is for artists even to get to the top and stay there. You know what I mean? You can have a, uh, you know, you can be a, a glimmer, a, a little something on YouTube or on TikTok for two weeks and then you're gone. You know, it's not, you can't make it into a career. Okay. That part I do give you, but the whole thing is like, traditionally there've been people with one hit wonders. They're hot one month and then That's right. never hear them again. That's right, yeah, yeah. So in at least... This part of the music industry, the jazz industry, where do you see that going? It's hard to tell. Um, I mean, I see that uh, in in our kind of field, we call ourselves jazz adjacent, right? We don't really consider ourselves jazz, hardcore jazz. I mean, our soloists are jazz soloists, and um, you know, our music is predominantly instrumental. Um, but um, I think. What I find interesting is there tends to be a um, a drive towards chops, if you will. You know, it, it, it seems to me like what you see on TikTok these days is like physical feats of performance and playing that are so incredibly disciplined, that are so beautifully executed, that are so out of the scope of most people. I mean, some of the stuff I'm seeing from some of the younger players on on TikTok is just like, I, I don't even know where to start. Like, where do you even get that kind of dexterity? Where do you even kind of build those kind of chops? So there seems to be a very chops-oriented um, fascination these days that young people have with jazz, you know? Um, you, you see a group like um, um, Snarky Puppy, okay. right? Uh, snarky puppy it's not I mean I'm sure they would be offended by this but it's it's the writing is secondary to the playing I think you know and and I don't mean that in every case I think a lot of the stuff is 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 well crafted but at the end of the day they're looking for a platform to 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 play over not for it's not a compositional uh, uh, challenge right so that seems to be where a lot of the younger people are these days. You know, even even in this project we saw it, you know, with some of our kids coming in and, you know, like there's a moment in the EPK where you can see our, uh, Art Avalos's son, the drummer, says, uh, Chris Avalos, he says, I, he's asked the question by the interviewer, so when you inherit this band, what are you going to do with it? He goes, I'm going to make it into a fusion band. It's like, okay. No problem. I mean... Okay, let's go to the Snorkel Puppy thing. Okay, so and then I go to the Fusion Band thing. So the thing about Snorkel Puppy that I have my ear about is like, 
And this is probably going to come back because to me, because I had people who in the band on the show before. Okay. Oh yeah, for sure. I had like, they're, they go out, they do a show, 16 piece and all that stuff. I think it's 16 outrageously good artists. Like they, oh, amazing. they, um, like you said, technically on top of the game. Absolutely. Their song arrangements suck. I say, <laughs> no, you, you nailed it to these to me. It's like you could get a composer and build off the composer and then have the arranger do some stuff. But some of the times it's like, I'm waiting for the band to open up for the solos, mm-hmm. at least when I see mm-hmm. them sure. live. So I yeah, yeah, do yeah. <laughs> agree with you on that. For us, composition is really, it's where everything starts and that's why we, do what we do. We want to write the songs. We want to create this kind of, this genre. You see, for us, you probably notice this in listening to the record. I don't know if you, how deep you've gone into our catalog, but you can hear that energy for us is like one of the most important things. It's like on so many levels, we're like a rock band that got, you know, distracted by jazz. You know what I mean? It's like we, we call ourselves jazz adjacent heavy metal hoedown. You know, because it's like we love the power. And when you have nine people on stage, the power that we have at our fingertips is so profound and so impactful. Um, you know, like, and, and we're very fortunate because we have such a large band. I mean, there's disadvantages to having a large band too, but the big advantage is that, you know, we've got a lot of palettes to arrange with. And, you know, Doug Wilde, the other uh, leader and composer, uh, and I have both, we've been pushing people to, to explore other instruments. So uh, as soon as we started writing um, this kind of, this period of Mantaka's work from about 2007 to today, we went and looked for, you know, how could we use alto flute? How could we use bass clarinet? What does bass clarinet and power guitar sound like together? What does bass clarinet and stand-up bass sound like together? How can we... How can we play with these ensembles within the ensemble to create sonic spaces and and feelings that we haven't created before? And and so for us, that's the real excitement. You know, it's like it's not about chops. It's about doing a solo that speaks to the composition of the song and creating a song that supports the soloist. It's 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 a two way street, you know. Okay, but when you say that you're a rock group that is got on occupy a jazz group that got occupied by jazz i said oh whatever you said there a so, rock band that got that got distracted by, by jazz. jazz okay i'm sorry okay so the band name wasn't based off the dizzy gillespie song yes because back when we started in 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 1979 chano pozo and dizzy gillespie had written manteca in 1949 and manteca was considered at the time to be kind of the first song of Latin and jazz um, mixing together, right? A result of the Cuban immigration to New York. And, um, and so that was one of the tunes that we started playing when we just put together the band in the early days. We weren't doing original compositions when we first started. We were like basically playing salsa and samba and, you know, jazz-oriented Latin material. And then we started writing based on our experience of doing that. But so that's where the, the name of the band comes from. Okay. Good. That's it. That's what threw me off on it. I was like, hey, I thought it was literally based off that. Like Buckshot Lafunk is 
literally a jazz artist that used that as a cover name because he was on the contract. Right, right, <laughs> right. So that's why yeah, I'm asking that. I think it's, you know, our name is a, an interesting point at this, in this period of time, our name, I wouldn't say is helping us in any way. Um, but uh, it's, you know, after 14 albums, I couldn't imagine us renaming the band. No, that I agree with. But why do you say it's not helping you anymore? Because it speaks to a period that has gone by. It doesn't sound cool. It doesn't, uh, you know, we have moved on from the premise, the founding premise of that Latin meets jazz type of thing. Like we've, I think, gone to a different area musically, genre, genre speaking. So, but that's okay. I mean, it's what it is. Okay. Once again, not to pick on you. Because some people say I'm too mean sometimes. No, no, go. I love the hardcore. I love the hardcore. You go, man. How come you are able to move forward from the past versus a lot of other artists? Like, I noticed that some of the bigger names I had, they're able to move forward. You're able to move forward. And then they have a whole bunch that's like still living in 1954, 1965. Yeah. Um, so I look at my friends who have a small quartet, right? Um, bass, drums, piano, saxophone. And I think to myself, okay, so how are you going to reinvent? How are you going to, what's, what do you have to say about jazz that's new, that's fresh? If I go to a jazz club and I hear A, B, A, B, solo, 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 A, B out, I'm just like, no, sorry, I'm out. I'm not interested in that. It's just, I don't need to hear everybody solo on every tune. I don't need that. You know, I don't have enough time in my life to listen to that. I don't care how good they are. I'm just saying, I, I my patience for that type of thing is just, it's over. And, and I think as well, um, I'm not interested in going to a club and hearing a band that there's four musicians, they all play, they all play for the entire show. No, where's your arranging? What, why is everybody playing all the time? What's going on here? What, why, why are we not getting a variety of sonics? Why are we not getting a variety of arrangemental ideas? You know, I'm, that's kind of where I am in that, in that world. It's like, you can have the instrumentation of the classic jazz quartet or trio or quintet or whatever, but what are you going to do that makes it new and fresh? And, and how are you going to say something that hasn't been said before? That's what I'm looking for. Okay. So since you've been around longer than me, once again, another thing I always ponder and think about. So why do we, how should I say it, disregard a lot of the people moving the progression of the music forward? How do we disregard them? Why do we disregard them? Well, I, look, I think that the fact of the matter is, like Miroslav Vietis said many years ago, he said, if jazz music was on the radio, people's ears would be accustomed to it. They would understand it. They would have an opportunity to get inside it. It would mean something to them. But because it's not available to them, because it's not on the radio anymore in most markets, um, it has become a very uh, exclusive genre. And so when you're going to move the music forward, I think you have to move the music forward 
with your people, with your audiences, with by broadening who you're speaking to, you know, by including people in the experience of your work. That's very important. Okay, I can't speak from Canada's point of view because I've never really been there long. Okay, so I'm just picking on New York. There are people who tried to have jazz stations and it failed. Yes. People are not interested in it. That's right. And then the one big one that I'm not going to say because, you know, I tease them too much also. Right. (laughs) They don't even have the ratings like that. But then the artist is like, well, they played my song once, therefore I made it. Well, again, you know, what happens is when the audience is not exposed to the music, when it's not an option for them to bump into, you know, uh, then they don't understand it and they don't get a chance to kind of explore what it could mean to them. Um, And uh, I think, you know, for some, for for jazz musicians too, it's, (laughs) we have a responsibility to the audience, right? And, uh, and that, audio, that that responsibility is like, uh, are we speaking to them? Are we giving them uh, grooves and melodies that are, I wouldn't say comprehensible, but I would say accessible on some level? You know what I mean? That, that, that they can listen to and understand? Give me an example I, I of one. Well, I don't mean simplistic. I just mean... Um, You know, it's it's hard to say exactly uh, in in terms of giving an example, but I mean, you know, if you listen to Chick Corea, right? Ba 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 da 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 da. You know, you've got immediately you've got a way into that. It's complex. It's not easy, but it's comprehensible. You know, um, and. A lot of music uh, that's solo driven is just, uh, you know, listen to me, it's wankage, right? It's like, it's not musical. And it may be technically superior, and that's fine, but it's not speaking to the audience. It's speaking to a very exclusive group of people who are um, focused on that. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm not saying that jazz needs to be... um, simplistic in any way shape or form and if you said that my our our music was smooth jazz i would be deeply offended because i don't think it is but um (laughs) and why would you get offended by that oh because it's just not what i would want to be doing i wouldn't want to be known as that that's not at all the world that we're in but but i think at the end of the day um having a conversation with your audience bringing your audience into your music i think that's important and I think there's a lot of ways for musicians to do that and have chops too. I don't think it's a mutually exclusive situation. Okay, so I just gotta say something on smooth jazz because I don't care what anyone says. I like Songbird. Okay, mm-hmm. I think that's a great song. Sadly, I think Kenny G nailed it on that song. Mm-hmm. I think he opened a whole drama work for musicians. Him and uh, I'm I forget his name, the pianist player that plays with. For play, uh, hold on. I'm sorry. Uh, Bob James. I'm sorry, Bob James. Oh, Bob James, right? That's okay. sad. I, that should have been right there, but it was okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Bob James, 
I think they opened a whole drawn out work for a great amount of time off just what's it called? Mr. P, not Mr. PC. Oh, shoot. He did a cover. I know it's killing me. It's uh, whatever. I'm having a brain fart, people. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> As you keep pointing out, I'm a lot older than you, so I'm pretty familiar. It's with still those. bad. I know. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't know this off the top of my head still, but. Whatever. Bob James opened it up in the 70s with the saxophonist, whose name I'm forgetting right now. He also played, the saxophonist was also on just the two of us. Not Tom Scott. Uh, Grover Washington? Thank you. Grover Washington. Okay. Right. Grover Washington, right. So I'm just saying, like, that was work for people. It got people into jazz. It opened up their mind. It, you got what I'm saying? It got people more interested in the drama. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, but that's then, right? So now we're in another period now. So I think that what the question is like... So you mean modern smooth jazz? Modern smooth jazz, yes. Modern smooth jazz, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say because these people show up to smooth jazz festivals also and they actually pay. And I do agree with you. A lot of jazz festivals now are free and they're empty. Yeah. So that's a whole other disaster right there. <laughs> okay, but... We'll switch that. We'll go back to some other questions. So how about jazz clubs in general performing? How has that changed? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, we haven't played a lot of clubs. Like, you know, we were mostly playing concerts and um, kind of concert club type of things. So because with nine people, we were usually too big to go into a regular jazz club, you know, because they tend to have smaller stages. So um, it would be hard for me to say. I mean, I, I, you know, whenever I go to a club and the sound system is great and the band is well lit and the cocktails are well crafted and the food is good on the menu and the service is nice. You think, wow, this is a person who's so proud of this club. This is a person who's so proud of presenting music with dignity and with class. I think that's a very inspiring thing. And there's, you know, there's certainly are clubs where you can feel that from the moment you walk in the door. It's like, the, the the owners of this club are exceptionally proud to be working in this genre with these people. And that's inspiring. Okay. And what about in Canada? Have the clubs been at least being stable, consistent? Like they're not closing all the time? No, I think they're closing all the time. And I think that, you know, if you look at what's happening in Canada, um, very briefly, because uh, I know from my experience in many other fields that Americans are never really interested in what happens in Canada. <laughs> but, you know, our national broadcaster, CBC, used to play jazz. They used to have a, a much higher profile for jazz. And now the only time they play jazz is when their signal goes down and they can't find their programs and they need to put something on the air until they find their regular, regular <laughs> programs. So I always tease CBC. I always say, you know, you've uh, invented a new genre of jazz. It's called emergency jazz. So as soon as the signal goes down, you put on a record. Because you get in the car at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you put the radio on, and if they're playing jazz, they've got a technical problem, right? So... That's happened. And then there used to be a regulation with our, uh, like our version of the FCC, which is the CRTC, where all the rock stations and all the general interest stations had certain programming commitments once a week, which were um, 
either folk music, jazz music, or spoken word. And so they had to do a you know three-hour block of programming that was in either of those three formats. So what would happen is that all of the jazz, all of the stations in Canada on Sunday nights, they would have their jazz shows. And so there was a real network built. And then the CRTC changed that and said, ah, you don't have to have that anymore. And so then all the jazz shows were immediately canceled. And a whole network for jazz musicians went down, right? So that's that's part of the problem. It's like, it's it, you know, it's funny to sit around and talk about jazz and talk about legislation at the same time. But... Um, there used to be ways where people could potentially accidentally bump into jazz and find out, hey, I like this. Oh, this is interesting. Hey, you know, now those, the silos are so significant that you'll never find the music unless you look for it. But I get, in a way, I get that's a good thing, but I kind of don't like the government forcing people to, you know, play our music. <laughs> for sure, for sure. There, yeah, I, and I mean, he, I think anybody who has look, I guess what it comes down to, Leander, is this: if you are going to have a license, if I am going to grant you as the government, if I am going to grant you a license to broadcast, I am basically taking a whack of money and putting it into your bank account because you are now a broadcaster, and you can sell that airtime that I've given you. I've given you that airtime. It's not my time. I mean, it's it's the citizens' time, right? That airtime belongs to them. And so I've given it to you. Now you can look after that time. Now you're going to make money from that time. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor and broaden your scope a little bit. You can make money on rock music for seven days a week, for 24, for 20 hours a week. But I'm going to ask you for four hours a day or four hours a week where you're going to play some other kind of music. You can pick. No, could no, be no. spoken word, could be jazz, could be folk, could be gospel music, could be whatever it is. But I'm saying to you, you need, because I've given you these airwaves, you need to help people in different communities. So I think that's the way that I would look at that particular subject because I know that, you know, Americans are famous for this whole thing of like, the government shouldn't tell me what to do. It's not even the know? government shouldn't tell me what to do. It's just that if a community is based off the government, you know, making you do something, I don't think it's sustainable. Well, that has definitely been proven. That's the only reason why I'm saying that, because it's like, I already see it dying. I'm not as old as most of the people I interview. Right. The people who are younger than me literally don't even want to play instruments. So by forcing airtime, uh, even if we have TikTok, which I don't have people, and we force people. <laughs> I love TikTok. <laughs> it's addictive, so I stay away from it. I oh, got yeah, other stuff to try to do. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good plan. I, I, I agree. Okay, so even if we's like, okay, for every tw 200 videos you watch, you have to watch a jazz video. Oh, oh, you don't have to up. watch it. You don't have to. No, it, that's, it you don't have to up. watch it. We're going to play it. We're going to play it's it. It's a big difference. But There's it, a big, big difference. You can still skip it, but it yeah, pops up. Yeah, you can up. still skip it. Okay? Yeah. So that so that's, so Matt Zibbell pops up with his band. Yeah. I do agree. That's great exposure. But then it's like, yeah, this is what you could say, paranoid American. Where does that lead? <laughs> What's next? <laughs> 
Well, I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know that it leads to nefarious places. I think that it leads to uh, people having an opportunity to be exposed to new things um, and positive things. Um, I mean, I do respect tremendously, you know, uh, the First Amendment and freedom of speech and all that stuff. But at the same time, I think that, you know, government does have a place in, in terms of regulating the airwaves. And I think government has a place in terms of regulating uh, online as well. I mean, you know, you can't just go on Twitter or X or whatever it's presently called and say things without um, being responsible to the communities that we all live in. I mean, you shouldn't be able to. I think that's very important. Um, and, and so... Uh, I think supporting certain sectors um, of, of music and creation uh, with legislation, I think that's a, a positive thing. I, I, you know, yes, you're absolutely right that in an ideal world, um, people would not need those type of supports because the consumer would be the supporter. The consumer would be the one who says, I love jazz, I'm going to search it out. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to go to clubs. I'm going to do all these things. And the base of those people would be large enough to support a thriving jazz community. So that's what we all want. But I think getting that is not going to happen uh, without uh, the support of government in terms of ensuring that culture has a place um, and it's not just commerce. Well, that I agree on. And then... As even though I said what I just said, we all know that America subsidizes a lot of the music industry here. Yeah, and the there's oil a very famous too. one on 59th <laughs> Street in Columbus Circle, if you know what I'm talking about. Right, exactly. <laughs> sure. And, you know, the American culture is very different than Canadian culture. So in Canada, we have a lot more uh, government grant type of situations that, that have been very helpful for us in, in terms of prospering and creating our vision. Um, but in the United States, you have much more of a donor culture. You have a much more of a philanthropy. Whoops, that's going to be a tough one. Philanthropy <laughs> is much more prevalent in the United States, right, yes. than it is here. Because here I think people think, oh, the government's going to do it. I don't have to do it with my money. So so anyway, so that's, you know, that's part of, a, that's part of the culture here. There's lots of cultural differences between the two countries for sure. Not like I said, I'm glad. Uh, oh, this is a good time to put uh, your podcast. It's people. He has a very political podcast. I like it. <laughs> Check it out. Please tell us about that because you're throwing stuff at me that I don't normally get thrown at. Go. Yeah. Okay. So I have a podcast called um, Yes, We Canada, The Progressive's Guide to Getting the Fuck Out. And it is um, uh, political satire, um, basically the premise being that as the United States gets more and more difficult to navigate, um, progressives are going to want to move to Canada. And so in the podcast, I basically explain Canada to them. But as times have become more and more bizarre in the United States, I have focused the podcast more and more on, um, on what's going on in the U.S. and how it relates to Canada. So it's funny. Uh, it's about 15 minutes long. Um, we're just about to start season three, which starts on November 7th. And it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And season three will go until the election of 2025, uh, 2024. Okay. Uh, 
You got to give me an example of an episode now. I'm sorry. Of the Americans moving to Canada. <laughs> okay. Well, we explain everything to them from um, banking in Canada to how we assault our public buildings. So in other words, um, after the January 6th insurrection on, on Capitol Hill, I came up with examples of Canadians um, trying to uh, assault their their national buildings. And uh, it's, um, well, it's funny. Uh, Sad and funny. Ah, uh, stop. <laughs> that's the fun of life, okay? Yeah, and like right. <laughs> It's nice that you're able to do something like that because that's, that's entertainment for a different set of people altogether. Mm-hmm. Okay, also, Lee, quickly tell me about your other life, your documentary life. Um, I've made a few documentaries in my life uh, as a filmmaker and as a producer. And um, uh, one of them, the most recent one that I made was on, on my father, uh, the photographer George Zimbel, who passed away in January of this year at 93. Uh, he was very respected and very well known. And um, he shot things like Marilyn Monroe and Jack Kennedy and stuff like that. And so uh, we made a documentary about him in 2015 uh, that played all over the world and it was quite a wonderful experience to uh, to make a documentary uh, with my parents. <laughs> it's not easy to do with your parents, if you can imagine. <laughs> um, and so uh, that was a, a great experience. And um, yeah, I've made other documentaries and I've worked in television uh, as a producer uh, on a lot of different type of things. Uh, the most recent thing that we've been working on is uh, Manteca has been doing a streaming series called Road Stories, uh, whereby we go into a studio and uh, um, we invite two artists, two artists, usually one kind of emerging artist and one established artist to play with us. And we arrange their music for our band. And uh, that's been an incredibly cool experience. And then we tell stories from the road, uh, some of which are even true. And it's funny and it's musical and it's really well shot. We have like 10 cameras shooting it. And so it's really a cool, a cool project. Okay. And, and if you want, I mean, I can give you a, a link to a uh, trailer if you want to post that. Oh, uh, yes. Your... I'll put it on the website and everything. Okay, trust great. Me. So then it... folks can actually see what it is that we're doing. Yeah. Because trust me, I think they should check it out. Obviously, you're very political. I would do more of that with you, but. We're trying not to go there right now. <laughs> Who can blame you for that? Okay, so just curious, one key question that I'd love to ask people. If you could turn back time and talk to 18-year-old you, would you talk them out of being a musician? Never. Would never do that. I would say that it's been one of the most gratifying things that I've ever done. And um, because I've worked in a lot of different uh, idioms like film and television and stuff like that, I would say that musicians are the most interesting people that you will meet. Um, <laughs> they're just fun to hang with, fun to talk to, fun to laugh with. Um, and I think music is uh, its an incredibly gratifying thing to work on to perform, to play. It's called playing for a reason. It's a joy. And, uh, you know, when I'm on my, at my position with my band that I've been with for 44 years now, and 
I hear us, all nine of us, nail something. And I can hear the air in between those notes. And I can hear the air in between a shot. And it's just tight as could be. It's so tight because it's come from 44 years of playing with each other. To me, that is just one of the most exciting things that I could experience. It's just, it's like a big hug. Okay. And yes, people do come on here and say, no, I would talk myself out. But okay, I give you that. Oh yeah, no, I would never, I would never talk myself out of it. It's given me uh, incredible opportunities to see the world. It's given me incredible opportunities to meet wonderful people. And it's given me incredible opportunities to develop skills like record production and television production because I've been on those sets, right? I, I went into studios and I was, you know, doing sessions as a session player for a long time. And I was just like, is that what the producer does? This session is so disorganized, I could do that better. And so then I would do it, you know, and I would learn how to do it. And sometimes I would do it better and sometimes I would do it worse. And, and the next time I'd do it, I'd do it better. And the same thing happened with TV and the same thing happened with live events that I do. It's like I would go and do them as a musician. I'd be like, that's, I could do that better. And it's not a, it's not being a, a braggart or an egocentric. It's just that, you know, you have a certain scope of looking at something and going, oh, okay, that's what they're doing here. I think I would have something to add to that discussion. So it's been great. It's, being a musician has been something I, I, I have no regrets about. I have regrets about decisions that I've made in my career, but who doesn't? Well said. Very profound, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay so can you tell them this, your website where to find you all where to find your documentaries and your music all that stuff please okay so manteca's website is manteca m-a-n-t-e-c-a dash music dot com and if you go there you'll find tons and tons of videos um all kinds of music beyond this record that uh you're focusing on today um, you will also find um, the liner notes, the extensive liner notes on this record, which tell the story about how the record was made, which is quite fun. And um, you'll also find the trailer that I was telling you about for our Road Stories streaming series. Um, if you want to find out more about me, my uh, email, my uh, web address is mattzimbel.com, M-A-T-T-Z-I-Z-I. Sorry, M-A-T-T-Z-I-M-B-E-L dot com. And um, uh, the podcast is called Yes We Canada, The Progressive's Guide to Getting the Fuck Out. And you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Okay. Well, sir, that is just very interesting, I must say. Is that a rap? No, that's a rap. I'm just saying. Well, that's not good. <laughs> but yeah, everyone, this is the end of an improv exchange. Thank you, and have a good one. <laughs> I really appreciate it, Leander. Thank you so much. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>